Dead Air by Scott Overton. Chapter 2 Lee awoke sprawled across his couch. Adrenaline shot through him as he realized he wouldn't have heard the alarm clock in the bedroom. What time was it? His eyes found the blue numbers of the DVD recorder above the TV and he released the breath he was holding. 4.07 a.m. Late, but not too much. He shaved a few minutes off his morning routine, snapping from one task to the next with total focus. His mind had settled during the night, and when images of the previous day tried to intrude, he pushed them aside. There were specks of red in the sink. He'd made his gums bleed a little. He shouldn't have let things get to him. He was forty years old, goddammit. He ought to know who he was, not let other people define him. Not Michaela, not some crackpot with a radio and a red pen. As he wheeled onto Notre Dame, a bread truck pulled in front of him. The streets were empty, but the driver hadn't waited for Lee to go by. The truck accelerated to just over the speed limit, but Lee stamped the gas pedal to the floor, swung into the left lane, and roared past. He didn't slow down until he reached the radio station driveway. Unlocking the door of the building put his new confidence to the test. Another break-in wasn't likely, but he listened with his full attention as he walked through the halls. The control room garbage can was empty. The cleaners must have done their rounds during the night, and the crumpled wad of brown paper had gone with them. Good. He felt his shoulders relax. He had work to do. People counted on him to help them start their day. He wasn't going to let a few morons sabotage that. He went on the air at 5.30, and with each word he felt the old Lee Garrett return. After eight o'clock he told J.J. about the hate note. The young man nodded. I knew there was something going on. You shouldn't ought to let a chicken shit like that get to you, man. What is it you always say? If they don't have the guts to sign their name, they ain't got the balls of a ballerina. Fuck em if they can't take a joke. Lee laughed. He turned on his microphone to talk over the intro of the next song. 620 The Box, favorites of the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Here's Eric Clapton saying, lay down Sally. These days, Eric could have to get her permission in writing. He smiled to see J.J.'s eyebrows rise. Then the flashing of the phone line indicator caught his attention. "'You going to answer that call?' J.J. asked. "'Nah, probably a feminist with no sense of humor.' Lee shuffled some papers and made a show of checking the computer screen for the next song. "'You want me to answer it?' "'Be my guest.' J.J.'s face and voice revealed nothing as he muttered, "'Yes, ma'am,' and "'No, ma'am.' And last he hung up the phone and shook his head with a sober expression. She wasn't happy. Wanted to know why we never play anything from the Partridge family. He gave a howl of laughter. No doubt. I just played a promo for the request show, too. J.J. brushed his eyes with a finger. At least it wasn't a feminazi. Being a man these days, it's like you should have the words I'm sorry tattooed on your forehead. <laughs> Try being a white man. Their laughter brought the receptionist into the room to investigate the noise. Most of the on-air staff had gathered in the announcer's lounge. The Bureau of Broadcast Measurement Report was due in that morning. As Lee walked in, Doug Rhodes was talking about the country music station that had just signed on in town, CWLF, The Wolf. See, bitch, the dog of the ratings. Tune in for a great piece of tale. 
He rubbed his hips suggestively against his counterpart on Z-104's afternoon drive show, Rick Johns. Johns reacted as if he'd been stung. Lee laughed with the rest, then said, So which one of you jokers likes to have fun with a red pen? Their faces went blank. Z-104's evening host, Damon Allen, looked at him. His mouth twitched, and he asked, Is it a big, long pen? Rhodes took over. Yeah, with a vibrator function? Tracy, you've got one of those, don't you? Tracy Banderjee was used to jokes about the long evenings she spent in the CTBX control room. She curled her lip. Not since you borrowed it and wore out the battery. Lee waited to get their attention again and explained about the note. Not your handiwork, Rhodesy? Rhodes shrugged, then shook his head. No hard feelings, guys. A joke's a joke. But if we don't know who did it, Ellis might have to assume somebody broke into the building and get the police involved. He wanted to make sure they didn't hold anything back. It wasn't me, Rhodes said to the floor. The faces of the others were sour. None of them liked to think an outsider could have invaded their inner sanctum. Lee forced a smile. No sweat. Uh, maybe Mayor Warden has decided to reveal his true skinhead self. The mayor's bad toupee was legendary. The laughter cleared the air, but Lee shuffled away toward the production studio. His mood wasn't improved by twenty minutes of recording hard-sell commercials. He could never understand why business owners thought their customers wanted to be yelled at. He should call Michaela, find out what she wanted. Instead, he went to find Dan Arnott. The ratings report would be in by now. Arnott was with René Charette, the PD for Z104 in Charette's office. The two men were taking turns calling up graphs on a computer screen. Z-104's morning man, Barry Wright, stood leaning over Charette's shoulder and looked up as Lee entered. "'Looks good so far, buddy.' "'You picked up women,' Arnott said to Charette, running his finger along the screen that compared the Wiz's performance figures to the previous book. "'Soften the sound just enough without pissing off too many guys. Nice job.' He looked up. "'Lee, I printed off some preliminary stuff. Uh... Better come to my office and we'll look at it. He didn't want to talk about it in front of the others. Not a good sign. Arnott dropped into his chair and spread a handful of printouts on the desk. Close the door, he said as he searched for the pages he wanted, then handed two of them to Lee. One was from the most recent ratings period, the other from the previous survey. Both showed the average number of listeners during each quarter hour of the day in the 25 to 49 age bracket within the city itself the so-called core numbers. CTBX usually had better results with the full coverage rankings that included listeners everywhere the station's signal reached, but most advertising dollars came from the central core. Lee looked for the morning show, especially between 7 and 9, comparing the pages. We're down. A few small gains, mostly drops. 8 o'clock, 8.15. He glanced farther down the page. Not just mornings, though. Looks like a decline all through the day. Arnott nodded. Yeah, we especially lost women. He handed over two more pages labeled time blocks. They showed the results organized according to blocks of time, morning show, midday, afternoon drive. The trend was downward and obvious. What about 35 to 54-year-olds? The older audience was traditionally more loyal to the box because of its older music. Better, down a little. I haven't had a chance to get into too much detailed stuff yet. From this, I'd guess we're down about 5% in the 25 to 49-year-olds, basically flat in 35 and older, down a shade in the mornings. And most of the loss seems to be women. Maybe they went to the whiz. 
Barry and Sandy have had better chemistry lately. Lee shifted in the chair. And the company pours a ton of money into the whiz. Look at all the stuff they were giving away this time. And the TV ads. Sure, but our vacation packages were hot. We were counting on them to draw more women. Ellis isn't going to be happy, and I'll have to eat crow. No bonuses for us this time, my friend. Shit! Lee slapped the desk. Street talk was good, too. You think it's an accurate book? For the money BBM pays, kids are the only ones who bother to fill out the ballots anymore. You can't get the straight goods from a sample of a few hundred people when most of them are under twenty, with iPods glued to their hips. Arnott waved the suggestion away. We can't cry bad book every time it doesn't go the way we want. Sometimes we have to accept that the listeners are trying to tell us something. How did CMOR do? Did they pick up the older women we lost? They took a tumble, too, but they've been struggling for a while now. Ron Wayne was the king of the hill for years until you came to town. You kicked his butt off, and he's been getting grass stains ever since. Lee started to say something, but stopped. Then he said, No one stays on top forever. Arnott was staring at the pages. Let's face it, this BBM is just more proof of the slide of AM radio. We're in the same boat with CMOR and Talk 960, and there may not be a damn thing we can do about it. Government regulators could have leveled the playing field by allowing AM stations the choice to move to the higher quality FM band, but year after year they refused. The room was quiet for too long. Arnott must have more to say. This isn't all the bad news, is it? What aren't you telling me? The program director opened his mouth, then cleared his throat. I've talked it over with Maddie Ellis. We're, we're going to go with a team morning show on the box. Lee felt cold sweep over his body. Meaning what? Don't worry, you're not out of a job. We're going to hire someone, a new partner for you. With Dave Berg going to Windsor, we'll bring in a replacement news anchor in January, one with more personality, and we'll get J.J. more involved. I think he can spark something, bring a young element to the show, too. His words were like a slap in the face. How long have you been cooking this up? Alice said to wait and see what this book was like. I think we've seen. We've got to do something. You know I've always worked solo. I do a hell of a good job all by myself. Arnott's embarrassed flush developed thin white patches on his cheeks and lips. Do you know how many morning guys work solo in markets this size anymore? The Lee Garrett show is a dinosaur. Everybody has a team morning show these days. Don't you read the trades? For shit's sake, Lee. His voice softened. It's not a criticism of you. It's just the way things are. She won't be calling the shots. You'll still... She? I... What I have in mind is a younger woman. Someone who will be a good counterpoint for you. Present the female point of view. He searched for words. We need a woman. It's what everybody else is doing. Well, that makes it right then, Lee hissed, dismayed that he hadn't suspected anything. Then, like a burst of light in his brain, he realized that the plan had gone even farther than Arnott was admitting. He was instantly sure of it. You already have somebody in mind, don't you? You've already got somebody interviewed and ready to start. He read the truth on the other's face and slammed the desk with his fist. His voice was probably carrying through half the building, but he didn't care. Christ, you never even considered that I should be a part of hiring my own goddamn partner, you little shit! He stormed out of the office, the slam of the door like a cannon shot, leaving Arnott staring at the doorknob. Maddie Ellis was out of the building, but Lee vowed to give her an earful the next chance he got. 
On the station corkboard near the back door, a short memo from Ellis offered the usual bullshit congratulations. Most of the staff never saw the actual ratings numbers, and with statistics like the BBMs, there was always a way to find some obscure result that made you look like a winner. The company would spring for a couple of rounds of drinks after five at Clambaker's. Lee decided not to go. He'd never missed a ratings party, but he was in no mood to listen to Charette gloat or Arnott fabricate, and he didn't need a reminder that the glory days of the Lee Garrett show were a thing of the past. He was halfway home before he remembered his lunch appointment with Tom Gowan. Shit, should he cancel? Gowan was an old friend, the morning newscaster at CTBX when Lee was hired. He'd understand Lee's frustration better than most. On the other hand, it might be good to have someone to talk to. Someone who'd been through all the bullshit and survived. Gowan had turned to selling cars and now computers. Not glamorous stuff, but at least it was honest. Lee turned the car around. Waiting at a red light, he found himself looking at a woman in a light-colored Ford Fiesta beside him on the right. Their eyes met, and he saw wavy, dark hair framing a face with fine features and well-defined cheekbones. She had the peaches and cream skin of an English girl. Her full lips curled into a rueful smile under his scrutiny. Then the cars in the line began to move. He let her merge into the lane ahead of him and make the turn, and she raised a hand in acknowledgment. A couple of blocks later, she turned left again and was gone. Lee felt a brief lift of his heart vanish with her. What was that about? A man entering the second half of his life wasn't supposed to get a schoolboy's rush at the sight of a pretty face. Gowan was waiting for him in the entrance of the King's Buffet. After hanging up their coats, they followed a server to a table and ordered drinks. Gowan wrapped his sports jacket over the back of his chair. Shall we hit the buffet right away? Sure. Lee's stomach twisted at the thought of the deep-fried chicken balls and shrimp. It was already on acid overdrive. He loaded his plate with rice and some of the dishes with lighter sauces. Gowan stocked up on fried food, confirming Lee's impression that the man had put on twenty pounds since they last met. There wasn't much for the two divorced men to say about their families, so the conversation inevitably turned to the radio business. I caught some shit from a listener the other day, Lee said. Sent me a nasty note. Very nasty. That happened to you much? All the time. Even convicted criminals tear a strip off you for reporting their names. And remember when Mayor Warden was so pissed at me? The other candidates kept catching him in lies, and he claimed I was harping on it. Gowan took a gulp of his rye and coke. He was right, though. I was playing it up. Son of a bitch had been a fat cat too long and was letting too much of the cream show on his whiskers. He got re-elected anyway. Gowan sighed. Yeah, and that's why he dropped his complaint. Anyway, I remember you taking heat when you got on the bad side of that police sergeant. What was his name? Dieter. Fred Dieter. He just wasn't a fan of poetry, I guess. Ode to the incompetent, right? Gowan rubbed at his smile. The man screwed the pooch on his investigation and the drug dealers walked. Didn't take a genius to see that. Besides, I never mentioned any names. And the ode generated a lot of water cooler talk. That's my job. Sure, but don't expect him to see it that way as he watches promotions pass him by. The observation had already come true. Lee had heard through the grapevine that Dieter even blamed him for a failed marriage. He shook his head. Were you ever threatened by a listener? Gowan finished his drink and ordered another. You want to go for dessert? Nah, I guess I shouldn't either. He fidgeted with his empty glass. I haven't told too many people this story. I don't know why. It was about five years before you came to town. 
My kids were all young. Annie had just started kindergarten. Lee had a memory of a sandy-haired girl with bright blue eyes. He knew Gowan didn't see her very often since his ex-wife had moved the family two provinces away. Gowan cleared his throat. That was back when we still did editorials on the radio, remember? Comment. No, speaking out, that was it. Anyway, I'd done one about immigrants. Nothing bigoted. I just said that too many of them were coming into the country, working the minimum, and then winding up on welfare. Or using student loans from our government to get an education here, then refusing to pay the money back. He looked up at Lee. I had a neighbor once who bragged about doing that. To me, a Canadian taxpayer. I should have turned the bastard in. Gowan's drink arrived, and he took a deep pull. One day, while Annie was walking home from kindergarten, this big white car with a lot of rust on it pulls up beside her. Driver rolls down his window and calls her over. Thank God he didn't know her name or she might have gone to him. Annie was such a sweet little kid, she could never believe anybody'd want to hurt her. She stays on the sidewalk, and the guy starts talking about how he knows her daddy's on the radio, and maybe her daddy thinks he's a big shot, but he'd better watch his mouth or somebody might get hurt. Annie starts walking faster and faster to get away from him, but he keeps up with her in the car, repeating that somebody could get hurt, like maybe Daddy's little girl walking home from school all by herself every day. Maybe one day she wouldn't be coming home to Daddy. Gowan's voice had dropped to a near whisper as he stared into space. Annie started crying and began to run. She was only a few houses away from ours. The guy sped up and pulled into the next driveway to cut her off. Fortunately, Gloria was watching for Annie from the front window like she always did. She ran out of the house and the guy chickened out, backed up and squealed off down the street. Did they ever catch him? Nah, Gloria was too scared to think of looking at the license plate. White car with rust. The driver was a black guy with a mustache. That's all Ann could remember. The police kept an eye on her for a while, but the guy never showed up again and her big, strong daddy couldn't do a thing. You know what that feels like? His dark eyes hardened. We decided to move. We put Anne in a new school, but she had nightmares for months after. Maybe she still does. He grabbed his glass and shook a few drops from the melted ice cube into his mouth. I know I still do. The two men were silent for a moment. Gowan reached for the check the waitress had just left. No, my treat, Lee insisted. He couldn't really afford it, but the meal had already cost Gowan enough. They were both quiet as they put on their coats and left the restaurant. When they said their goodbyes and Lee turned toward his car, Gowan spoke once more. I guess my point was, never ever underestimate what a listener can do. It only takes one wacko. God knows there are plenty of them around. And they listen to the radio just like everybody else. Gotta love Neil Diamond, he thought as he turned up the song playing on the old fridge-top radio and slung his coat over the nearest chair. As Neil was giving it all away for the sake of a dream in a penny arcade, Lee saw the flashing light on his answering machine and pressed the playback button. The message was like sulfur in the air. Lee, for God's sake, call me back. I need to talk to you about Christmas. I'll be out this afternoon, but call me tonight at home. The clang of the phone in the cradle came through clearly on the recording. He wondered if a man's voice would answer when he called. Then he scolded himself for thinking like an adolescent afraid to call a girl in case her father picked up the phone. He scribbled,
Call Michaela on a piece of scratch paper, stuck it to the fridge with a magnet shaped like a bowl of fruit, and replaced the pen in a pencil holder made from a tin can. His daughter Sarah had covered it with crayon-decorated paper in the shape of a clown, in kindergarten or grade one, he thought. He smiled at the memory, then shuddered as he imagined Sarah being stalked like Gowan's daughter. The sloppy block letters of the note he'd just written caught his eye. They were in red ink. Was his mind playing some kind of game? A hate message from his subconscious? Nonsense. He didn't hate himself, and he didn't hate Michaela. He never had, even through the worst of the divorce. It might have made things easier in a way. He rolled into bed for a nap and pulled up the blankets. A man wasn't supposed to be in love with his ex-wife. They'd been apart for two years. Christmas was coming around again. Not his favorite time of year, not anymore. The first Christmas after their separation was when he'd truly come to understand that their marriage was broken beyond repair. They'd always spent Christmas with her side of the family in London and Boxing Day with his parents on their small farm near Gravenhurst. Even after his father was killed by a falling tree branch in a November windstorm, the holiday routine had remained. After the separation, as they faced the prospect of their first Christmas apart since falling in love, Michaela suggested Lee drop into her parents' place around lunchtime Christmas Day and stay for dinner. She said the children would want him there. From the moment he came in the door, they were all walking on eggshells. Sarah and Jason were young teenagers. They couldn't pretend nothing had changed. Michaela's parents tried so hard not to say the wrong thing, and Michaela's nearly theatrical efforts to act normal only made things worse. Lee ached for her. He wanted so badly to hold her, comfort her, to make her smile a real smile. But there was no opportunity to be alone. The harder Michaela tried to recreate the old trappings of Christmas, from the carol sing to the mulled cider, the more her efforts failed, and she escaped to the kitchen. Lee finally became convinced it would be better to bring the ordeal to an early end and prepared to leave. Michaela screamed at him, accusing him of selfishly spoiling other people's plans whenever the mood struck him. The ugly exchange ended when they heard sobs and running footsteps from the other room. He stammered an apology to his embarrassed hosts and left without saying goodbye to his children. On Christmas Day. By mid-February, the divorce had begun. No, he thought as he drifted into sleep. Please, God, not another Christmas like that one. Dinner was a can of microwave cordon bleu stew. He had some bread that was a few days old, but it'd be all right toasted. As he pushed down the toaster handle, he heard the snap of a spark, and a tendril of ozone-scented smoke drifted like a finger into the air. The elements stayed black. He wiggled the power cord, but all it produced was a fizzing noise. With a guttural sound deep in his throat, he grabbed the toaster and threw it across the room. The ounce and a half of Beefeater's gin that had sat in his cupboard for three months tempted him, but he'd need it more after, he called Michaela. Instead, he stretched his after-dinner tea as long as he could. When it was gone, he reached for the phone and pulled it far enough to let him perch on the edge of the couch. Michaela answered, "'It's about bloody time, Lee. You may not have much use for me, but a little consideration for Sarah and Jason—' "'Knock it off, Michaela,' he lowered his voice with an effort. "'Do we have to start a fight in the first five seconds, or did you actually have a two-way conversation in mind?' When she said nothing, he continued on, I called back three or four times. I didn't always leave a message because I'm hardly ever home. You know that. Better than anyone else, I expect. Lee sighed. What do you want? It's about Christmas. She hesitated. I, we, Robert and I, 
We're going to take the kids to Florida over the Christmas holidays. Robert's partner at the clinic has a condo near Fort Lauderdale that he's offered to us. I thought you should know, so you could make plans to see the kids before we go. Lee? Are you there? A weight pressed against his chest. From the moment she was hired by the dental clinic, it had been obvious to him that Robert Farrell had more than a business interest in Michaela. Lee had all but accused them of having an affair a few years later. What hadn't been true then had now become a reality. Maybe he'd even helped to fulfill his own prophecy. He tried to speak but had to clear his throat. How kind of you to tell me your plans for my children. Or is it because Farrell's hoping I'll demand to take the kids myself so the two of you can go off alone for a week between the sheets? The jab had been a sudden intuition, and as he said it, he heard a gasp from Michaela that was more than outrage. He pictured her glancing at Farrell as she weighed the truth of the slur. God damn you, she hissed, injecting each word with more venom than he'd ever heard in her voice. She slammed the phone with enough force to make the line crackle. He let his hand drop into his lap, still holding the receiver, and whispered, I love you, too. In Chapter 3, a radio station event becomes the scene of sabotage, and the persecution of Lee Garrett gets personal. Learn more about Dead Air and how to get a copy of your own at scottoverton.ca. Thanks to Audionautics.com for the music, and thanks for listening to Dead Air. I'm Scott Overton. <laughs>